of course. I would expect nothing less. Legally, I'm required to say I'm not smoking right now. No, he's not. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Principal Instigators, a science podcast for the haters. My name is Dan, and today, I subject Oliver and Sandra to one of the darkest places reachable on Earth today, the inside of the lawyer brain. We hope you enjoy. Yeah, it's going to be real, it's gonna be real good, guys. Yeah, you're about to get subjected to some serious lawyer brain. I'm excited. Let's do it. I've somehow managed to smuggle my way onto this podcast. Wait, who are you again? (laughs) You've already used your lawyerliness to keep us out of a variety of types of trouble. That's true. Not yet released a single episode. That's true. And if, and you know, for (laughs) the secret reward tier is that you get to listen to these actual threats. You have to subscribe to our Patreon, which does not exist. And also sign multiple NDAs. And we will send you a cassette tape. But anyway, despite the fact that I've somehow smuggled my way onto this podcast, so an idea has been rattling around my brain ever since I thought about quitting my job as an engineer and going to law school and becoming a lawyer who does science law, technically. And really, it's really the ultimate question of what should science be for in the law? You know, science and the law have intersected with each other for as long as we've had science and law, which is a bit of a terrifying thing to think about. You know, for example, an infamous first usage or early usage of science and the law was experts were quote unquote consulted at the Salem witch trials, which always a good thing to have your experts when you're putting women to death for fun. It goes back even further than that, right? You think about oh, yeah. Aristotle and Plato, who are in some ways like some of the first scientists, but also some of the first legal thinkers as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they were not very good at either. By modern standards. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, that whole equality thing, uh, you know. Well, you have people. You have people who think I'm really smart. I can figure out how things ought to be, or like what the truth of things is. And like science and the law is a pretty good, are both pretty good subjects to to exercise that massive amount of brain power. <clears throat> Well, I mean, for the longest time, right, scientist wasn't necessarily a job. And it was just these random rich people who decided that they wanted to, like, make little pants for frogs and put the pants on the frogs and see how that would impact them. <laughs> like, it's such a recent development that being a scientist can just be a job in the way that you make your own money. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about, like, little pa- frogs with pants. <laughs> Frog pants were a thing, and they were adorable. Adorable. Frog pants were created and used by someone who, as I recall, didn't have a PhD, but was just some random rich guy who was like, this is how I want to spend my time. I want to help humanity understand this part of nature by putting pants on frog. I'm just I'm looking up images of frogs wearing pants on the Internet right now. I swear I'm not making this up. It's a real thing. <laughs> Law, science. Yeah. Are they good or are they bad? What happens? Bad. When you <laughs> Double bad. Spoiler, spoiler, it's all bad. I think it makes sense that like, there's some intersection though, right? Like lawyers are in principle want to be up to date on like our knowledge of the world and how they're crafting law. And if you're a scientist and you discover something, you want some claim to it. 
and that becomes a legal matter more than a justice purely scientific one, right? That doesn't mean that it's all good. <laughs> In fact, it is definitely not all good. I think a question that doesn't really get asked very often is like, what the hell are we supposed to be using science in the law for? Like, what is it supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing with it? There are a few main places where science pops up in a legal context. This is not an exhaustive list. Please do not dox me and write to my employer about how I don't understand. The main places are in court as evidence in agency decision-making, so like agencies that make rules, we'll get into that later, sewn into the law directly, and primarily I'm thinking of patents in this case, and then finally in arguments in the legislature. I have to start off with a few quick disclaimers. I'm an American lawyer. My training and experience are all in U.S. courts, agencies, and schools. This is going to have a U.S. focus, and I have basically zero insight into any other legal system. And then other very quick disclaimer, like I am I am a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. This is not legal advice. Again, please do not dox me and write to my employer about how I'm now your attorney. Please don't do that. That's not what this is. Dan is only me and Oliver's lawyer. Right, exactly. If you're not a co-host of this podcast, you got to get your own fucking lawyer. Correct. You're not, because as we've established... This is not a parasocial situation. You are not. You do not know us. <laughs> do not contact me. Do not contact us. <laughs> All right. So the f- like I said, so the first main place that you find science in the law is in the courtroom. So I have firsthand experience with this. So my I am a patent litigator, but really what I've done is I've wor- I've worked with experts to help them as they draft their reports and prepare for different positions and testify with trial, of which experts are almost always PhDs in some field. The subject matter of my practice is also about science. And again, patent litigation, patents in the modern day are largely about science, although not necessarily, but everything from like semiconductors to genetics to all sorts of stuff finds their way into patents. But really, what, really the way that science makes its way into the courtroom is as evidence. You know, if you think about on TV, you have like a medical examiner, whoever testifying in the, in like law and order and whatever. That's a, you know, a classic way that science makes it into the courtroom is that there's a, there is a scientist of some kind testifying as to some sort of scientific conclusion. But that's a pretty fraught avenue to get science into the courtroom because of a a few things. First and foremost, I know that I'll shock the both of you when I say that lawyers don't give a shit about science and are explicitly arguing for a specific side. Your goal is not to seek the truth. Your goal is to win. Now, and that means that a lawyer is going to present the stuff that's most favorable to their side, the stuff that's going to help them win. They're not looking for... They're not looking for like an object for objective truth. They're like, I want to put the facts that I want to show the jury in front of them. And I don't, and I would say that that's not in of itself a bad thing because on the other side, there's another lawyer and another expert scientist person who's saying the opposite things. And that by fighting, having two people fighting it out in opposite directions, eventually you like might be able to find some sort of truth. That would be great if that were true in a lot of cases. The real problem is that. You know who also doesn't know anything about science? Judges. Yeah, the judge. The judge has no idea. My experience is mostly in the federal courts. The vast majority of federal judges do not have scientific training. There are a handful of people who have science degrees, but like not really very many. I can speak from personal experience in law school that lawyers run from even very simple math. Trying to get them to understand any sort of moderately difficult scientific concept is an exercise in deep, deep frustration. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Every law student learns about the hand formula. The what? The, 
the the hand formula it's like very simple algebra it is quite literally b equals pl is this some ties model type like (laughs) (laughs) so this is multiplication yeah it's literally simple multiplication the investment in precaution should equal the probability that the an accident would occur times the harm resulting from the accident this is the thing from fight club right or, or it's simpler than the thing from Fight Club where they were like, we figure out how much like it would cost us to recall something and then we compare that to the settlement. So this is simpler. It is, simpler. It is literally that. It's just, yeah. I mean, if I wanted to dress it up, I would say the, the amount you should spend on precaution is should be the expectation value of your like the losses from risk. But like it's simpler than that. <laughs> is this called a hand formula? There is a judge... <laughs> There's a judge. Called, his name is quite literally Learned Hand. Man. No, seriously, the guy's name. Man. The guy's name is Learned Hand, and he was the one. Who came <laughs> <up>. Yes. <laughs> he, in fact, wrote a bunch of opinions that law students read, and he's like an extremely influential and well-known judge. Well, well-known between lawyers, anyway, and he was the one who came up with this formula. And I, and it, again, it is extremely simple, like multiplying two terms. And yet when I tell you that trying to get a bunch of law students to understand <laughs> how to figure that out, it was like pulling teeth. It was brutal. So do, what, do, do lawyers only get up to like addition or like do they also know subtraction? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure what your garden variety lawyer, what kind of math your garden variety lawyer would be able to understand. Okay, but did you know that the hand formula is also known as the calculus of negligence? I have, I did know. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even pre-calculus. I mean, calling it algebra is generous. It's arithmetic. (laughs) It is! It's... uh... But that should give you a sense of scale that lawyers are working on. Calculus. Would they? What would they think that it was? What would they call it? Ties model. <laughs> I didn't expect my heart rate to. This is this is very good, like background for us because obviously we have no idea that this. Like I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was this bad. <laughs> no, it's so bad. <laughs> I can vividly remember my torts class where we talked about this for the first time and it took a good hour and 15 minutes to like just to walk, just to walk through how this plays out how you think about how you think about this kind of prob- probabilistic thing and I okay. like you got to be kidding me. Let's, let's say you have a jar and you have three marbles one is blue Oh, God. <laughs> Listeners, if you're bad at math, it's fine. I don't I don't hate you for it. I'm not making fun of you. I am making fun of lawyers who are ostensibly going to use science in their day-to-day jobs. Oh, God. Pants on frogs sounds way more way better than this. <laughs> but that should give you a flavor for like the average lawyer or judge's scientific backing. The courts have decided that when somebody wants to bring expert opinion into the courtroom, the judge is supposed to act as a gatekeeper to keep out cranks. 
Yeah, keep out Christ. The law would call unreliable opinions, but basically that that's a euphemistic term for cranks, bullshitters, liars, etc., etc. How are the judges going to fucking know if the judges, if their if their education was? We are going to get there, Sandra. We are going to get there. <laughs> the standard by which judges are meant to gatekeep expert opinion, whether scientific or not, for our purposes, we're just talking about scientific opinions is called the Daubert standard. Not Daubert. Not Daubert, as it turns out. As much as it might look like Daubert, it's Daubert. Daubert. Isn't this a bunch of Australians? <laughs> no, this is actually... It, it, there's only one Australian, but we will get to, we will get to him in a minute. Judge, the Daubert standard basically puts the ball in the judge's court that the judge is supposed to look at the opinion that is supposed to be proffered and is supposed to test its reliability and come to a conclusion as to whether or not it's admissible. This is Federal Rule of Evidence 702. But as Sandra has already sort of already picked up on, judges are extremely ill-equipped to really handle this analysis, but it's not really their fault. They've been kind of given and they've kind of been dealt an impossible hand. Are there judges who specialize in the more technical? Yes, and we will get to them okay. in the patent Sorry. section. Now I know how you two feel when I do a the the daubert case itself i think is a handy illustration of the problem so the daubert case came about because of the drug bendectin which is a is it just like vitamin c and ibuprofen or something it might have been i can't even i didn't even look that far or like vitamin b6 something like that yeah, it was a drug that was like extremely commonly used to help control morning sickness during pregnancy. It was regularly prescribed to pregnant women the world over in the early nineties. Everything seemed great. Pregnant women were having less morning sickness. Good listeners, if you're familiar with morning sickness medication <laughs> and the history thereof, you may have uh, a. <laughs> Everything was good as they knew it at the time, but anyway. So the main player here, as Oliver foreshadowed, is an Australian obstetrician named William McBride. Oh, okay. It was the obstetrician. Yeah. It was Australian, not the families. So two families of children born with pretty serious birth defects, uh, Jason Dalbert and Eric Schuller. Families heard about McBride's paper he wrote saying that, hey, this drug Bendectin, it causes birth defects. So the family said, that sounds right to us. We're going to sue the drug. We're going to sue the company that makes Bendectin. Do you want to be our expert witness in our case? He said yes. And they sued and brought them, brought their claim against the drug maker for damages. Didn't McBride, wasn't he actually involved in the thalidomide litigation? I think he, he had had a history of investigating other morning sickness drugs. And that was sort of why he was initially looking into Bendectin and then like published his paper there. But I put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. I can't remember if it's the, I can't remember if he was involved with thalidomide, but he had been previously an expert, expert witness in a bunch of drug cases, a lot presenting similar facts like, Hey, I've been harmed by your drug because you didn't take care of specifically like morning sickness drugs causing birth defects. Exactly. I believe. So, the drug maker, after they do all the discovery and all that, the drug maker moves for summary judgment saying that, hey, your expert, Dr. McBride, submitted documents showing that no published scientific study demonstrated a link between bendectin and birth defects in humans. 
Dalbert and Schuller submitted expert evidence of their own that suggested that bendectin could cause birth defects. But their evidence was based on in vitro and in vivo animal studies, pharmacological studies, and reanalysis of other published studies. But it wasn't in like a paper, a peer-reviewed paper. And the trial court, when reviewing the, the motion for summary judgment, said like, look, these methodologies that, that Dr. McBride have proffered as an opinion have not yet gained acceptance within the general scientific community. And so your evidence isn't good enough. You lose. They appeal to the Ninth Circuit. This was in the West Coast. The appeals court said, yeah, we agree with the trial court. Your evidence isn't good enough. You got to get out of here. The Supreme Court oh, no. disagreed with the trial court and the appeals court saying like, it doesn't have to be that these opinions you know, have been accepted in the general scientific community. We're going to set up a new test to say when judges should be excluding expert testimony. Three parts to the standard. First, qualification, which is asking the question, is the expert qualified to testify competently to the opinions they plan to provide? Which really in practice means like, what's their education? Yeah, this, do they have a background? Yeah, in do this? they have a background in this stuff? You know, Did like get an hour and 15 minutes of multiplication. <laughs> <laughs> Did they take a class that was more than an hour long that you can only do if you already have a bachelor's degree where they explain to you, if you multiply this kind of number by this kind of number, you can expect this kind of number. We're so any lawyers are listening i'm doing this the 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 steps of the test out of order just because i want to talk about reliability last so the second part of the test is fit or helpfulness which is really asking like does the opinion fit the facts of the case or is it helpful to the trier of fact like will it assist the judge or jury when they're making their ultimate decision really what it really what it's guarding against is like people just hiring phds to be like yeah i agree with what the lawyer said when like the pa has nothing to do with anything at issue I, what's your research on oh i put pants on frogs <laughs> exactly <laughs> funny would that be <laughs> we're litigating like semiconductor patents and this one fucking guy shows up he was like going off about this during like a poor grieving family suing Tesla because their son died because of an auto like an autopilot accident. Oh god. That would be so much fun. You joke you joke, but I have written motions are doing essentially like arguing essentially that that like in not so many words, it's at it's t- saying to the judge what the fuck is this guy talking about? If you ever piss me off, I'm going to go and start submitting expert testimony. <laughs> Your Honor, objection. Your Honor, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to do that. Sounds very fun to me. I do that. <laughs> Any lawyers who are listening, <laughs> you may not contact us, but Sandra is now available for expert, <laughs> expert testimony. 
<laughs> I have never taken a class in physics, and I would love to provide my expert opinion <laughs> on anything related to engineering, physics, whatever, space stuff. If, if, if there's if there's a space related lawsuit. It's coming. There'll be there, there will be there. That's actually on the horizon. There have been some uh, near misses recently. Yeah. I won't tangent too hard, but that will get extremely messy because there's also a treaty involved, and it'll international law is a shit show. So that's going to get space lawsuits are going to get super messy. International law is a shit show. Extraterrestrial law is also a shit show. Combine those together, and it's. I considered going to law going to law school for space specifically for space law at one point, <laughs> and then decided I wanted no part of it. You'd be correct. Well, as the only co-host of this podcast who has no idea what the fuck these other two people are talking about when they're talking about these upcoming space lawsuits, I'm available. To- <laughs> 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 oh, God. I'm PhD. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's all you need. All you need. All right. So we've got qualification. We've got fit. And then finally, you have reliability, which is really asking the question, like, is the methodology that the expert proffers sufficiently reliable? So now this is this is, ends up being the meat of a lot of motions to exclude expert testimony. Is like, did this guy just sort of make up, make it up or not? Galileo. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to be an expert witness now. This sounds like so much fun. I want to make shit up and then have lawyers scramble to try and argue about why the things that I'm saying I just invented and there's just no basis for it anywhere else in the scientific community. This sounds so much fun to me. Anyway, okay. there are a bunch of subsidiary questions for reliability. And like the Supreme Court, this is like a classic thing that like the high courts versus lower courts and, ju- and lawyers do is like the higher court will set out, say like, here's some things you should think about as you're doing this. And then naturally everyone in the future just like applies it as a test and only thinks about those things. So the Supreme court, when you're trying to figure out if the experts put up a reliable opinion, like here's some things you should think about, like has the theory or technique been tested? Has it been subjected to peer review? What's the potential rate of error? Are there standards for controlling the operation of the method or theory, technique, whatever? And then is the methodology generally accepted? Naturally, every lawyer and judge from here on out has just applied this as a exclusive test. This is like exactly like a professor in lecture going through and being like, here are some things to like be aware of, whatever. And everybody in class noting those down exactly. Exactly. Keying in on exactly those things the professor says, even though it's like clearly just like illustrative and not exhaustive. And the professor probably is like hungover and just trying to get through (laughs) the freaking lecture. When I tell you this happens every single time that an appellate court sets out considerations, it every time it turns into a, it turns into an explicit test every single time. This is a five part test right. of reliability. And you're like these are just some things to think about. You're supposed to just make a call, and lower courts are like, oh, okay, here's the things I have to think about. Like, this no. is the exhaustive, right? This is all I got to think about. And you're like, no. Oh. So cool. Supreme Court reverses the lower courts, and you would think that that would be good news for Daubert and Schiller. I mean, it's better than summary judgment against them. Again, I don't think I'll shock you to for you to know to find out that the lower courts, when it got remanded back down, said, "Yeah, you still lose. The family still lost at the on the appeals court and the trial court and the lower." But because McBride faked his data, he made it all up, <laughs> and it was so bad and so pervasive that 
a tribunal, a med, like a tribunal about his, in Australia about his medical license, revoked his license to practice medicine, saying, and I quote, Dr. McBride deliberately made false statements in the article in relation to the experimental data, deliberately misreported the method of the experiment, and included spurious data. And for that, his license to practice medicine was yanked. And these poor families got nothing. That was the immediate aftermath. And then the longer-term aftermath, which was there was an immediate spike in the rates of hospitalization for nausea in pregnancy the world over because the tried and true drug that all the doctors were prescribing was suddenly people didn't want to take it. People weren't they, even if it was found to be like legally to you know be fine. You still see in the news like oh, there's a lawsuit about whether you know bendectin is actually causing birth defects and people get nervous about that even though it is literally B six and Unisom. I don't know some other like fairly anodyne yeah. drug, right? Right. Uh, which, yeah, turns out probably fine. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the idea of children being born, babies being born with birth defects is a hell of a lot more dramatic than this doctor who no one has ever heard of from Australia getting in trouble, right? Not to mention, I assume that that happened way, way, way after the initial headlines about how this drug was terrible, it's just a huge yeah. problem with the news in general is that a lot of time the most important and informative stuff happens when it's not news anymore. So you just don't hear about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like a, a consequence of the case, not a consequence of the verdict. Yeah. I did want to come back to the pin that I put in where, you know, McBride had played a role in uh, lawsuits and investigations of previous morning sickness drugs and birth defects that were caused by them successfully without any issues. And he just kind of kept doing that, it seems like. <laughs> and turns out, I don't know, I guess we'll get into this in a bit, but like this is a, a lucrative thing you can do is if you can be an ex expert witness, like, in addition to your job as a scientist, you can make a lot of extra money. Like there was a professor in my department in grad school who you know, did some research, but didn't really bring in that much in the way of grants, didn't move up that much in the way of, you know, along the sort of tenure track after he had, like he had gotten tenure, but he didn't move up much beyond that within the department. But he lived a very, very nice life with a lot of perks because he was a professional expert witness along with being a professional professor. And I'm not saying that like he did anything untoward or wrong, but if you can carve out a space where your expertise as a scientist is valuable in court, that can be very lucrative for you in addition to whatever you're doing. And I can confirm we hire professors all the time as extra witnesses, and they charge a lot of money for their time and are getting paid large sums of money to work to give their opinion. If you're in the right field at the right time, you can make a lot of money being an expert witness. I'm sure that the money is sufficient as a motivation for people to try to become essentially professional expert witnesses. But just based on what I've seen professors do in some other contexts, I would expect that there also could be more to it than that. You know, like a lot of time when a professor will write a book for the general public, right? Sure. It, it won't go out for review. If you write an academic book or if you write just an academic article, it'll go out for review. And even if you're seen as being at the top of your game, people might disagree with you and they might be making very good points that you missed or they might just be a pain in your ass, but you still have to deal with it, right? But then- You'll we'll have scientific review. Exactly. Yeah. But if you just write a book for the general public, you know, if you're a professor of astrophysics and you just write 
a horrible, useless book that gets, you know, sold wherever, even if it's not horrible and useless, right? God put a black hole in the center of the earth. <laughs> and that's what hell is. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're a professor and you write a book that's not going to be published by an academic publisher, it's just going to be published by a big publishing house and it's going to, you know, get sold to normal people in normal bookstores, it's not going to go out for review. And so all of a sudden, after having spent all this time constantly having your colleagues correcting you, Right now, you don't have that, and you can just go on a book tour to Barnes and Nobles across the country, and there'll be all these adoring fans who are science enthusiasts, and no one is really going to disagree with you or try and call you out on anything. And I think that that is a really great feeling for people who spent their careers in a profession where you are called out all the time and everything you say is constantly subject to review. Pushback is inherent in everything you do, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and so then you can just, like, be an expert witness and you just show up and you get paid a ton of money and someone else, you know, the other team's expert witness might disagree with you, but you don't have to deal with those disagreements the way that you would if those disagreements arose while you were revising a scientific article that had been sent out for review, right? They disagree with you or you don't. Either way, you get paid a whole bunch of money and your job is done. I can see how that would be appealing even if there weren't all the money involved. It's a lot of fun to talk to 12-year-old science enthusiasts and or lawyers and then you're hitting about the same level. <laughs> you know, the 12-year-old science enthusiasts probably understand multiplication a lot better. <laughs> so, listener, you might be, you know, you might be thinking about that test and you might be thinking about all the stuff that we're raising here and you might be asking yourself, how the hell is the judge supposed to make a call about whether an expert's opinion is supposed to come into the case or get excluded? Really, they've kind of been dealt an impossible hand here when having to make a call about even moderately difficult science when they have no backing themselves in the field and they've been given a tool that isn't really suited for the job. So thinking about the three prongs again, like qualification, I mean, it's just immediately credentialism. Qualification immediately turns into credentialism, which as the three of us and our esteemed listeners know, has only a very tangential relationship to actual knowledge. Fit is like pretty helpful in that you are, you're just looking at the methodology, trying to match up the opinion. You know, if the expert's just making some shit up, then it's pretty easy to do. But the nearly impossible one for a judge to handle is reliability. Like how the hell is a, how is a judge supposed to actually answer any of the questions that the Supreme Court raised? Are they supposed to do a survey of the field? Are they supposed to do experiments themselves? Like, they're supposed busy to do an internship, right? They sign up for a research experience for undergraduates and they yeah. <laughs> in somebody's lab. <laughs> I was just going to say, you may find yourself in the middle of a courtroom and you may ask yourself, how did I get here? <laughs> so at, every judge is saying to themselves, I have to exclude this total horseshit, but all I have is this Daubert motion denied stamp. It's really a bummer. Scientific evidence makes its way into courts in a bunch of different ways. I mean, there's a few prime examples. As every law and order watcher knows, science makes its way into the criminal it makes its way into criminal law, and we will do an episode on <clears throat> we will do an episode fully on the complete horseshit science that goes into criminal law we don't need to uncork those rants today because i have a lot of rants saved up for oh, this yeah. but if we're, if we're gonna save those for another time i will just leave the i will simply say calling even for for a podcast where we are absolutely haters i would not even call some of what gets allowed in criminal proceedings science i wouldn't either it is that low Another way that science makes its way into the quorum is with patents, but we'll talk about patents later. 
Another handy example is environmental justice. So a prime example of this is a Supreme Court case called Massachusetts versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Take your minds back to like deep in the middle of the George W. Bush administration. I remember literally where I was when this verdict dropped. I was literally coming home from dropping off recycling at the recycling center. <laughs> it's like way too on the nose, man. No, 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 no. It can't, we'll keep going. I was driving my Volvo 240 wagon, listening to NPR. Oh, my God. And they they had a, a bit about the latest Supreme Court ruling in Massachusetts v. EPA. And I that is an indelible memory because I, in addition to processing the verdict, I also thought, damn, I am such a stereotype. Right now. <laughs> I am the Lorax. I speak for the lips. So <laughs> you're fucking number one NPR listener. Number on one NPR listener. Definitely all. <laughs> and all. And, and be, number one NPR respecter. Pledge drive champion. <laughs> Mass versus EPA, law students learn about it in like admin law classes for a bunch of shit that we won't get into here because it's all stupid. But at the heart of the case was it's an environmental justice issue. The Clean Air Act requires the EPA to set standards for, quote, any air pollutant, end quote, from motor vehicles or motor vehicle engines, which quote, in the administrator's judgment, causes or contributes to air pollution, which may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health and welfare. In 2023, it isn't really in dispute anymore that car emissions harm the environment. But back in 2003, again, remember, peak George W. Bush brain poisoning, the EPA made a determination saying, we can't regulate greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide that come out of cars. And even if we could we won't set standards. Fuck you. So a bunch of states, set, including Massachusetts, which led the charge, sued saying, that's bullshit. You need to you need to set standards. They fought about it for many years because the initial determination by the EPA was made in 2003. The Supreme Court ruling doesn't drop until 2007. So that's four years of fighting about it. It's actually pretty fast, I feel like. Yeah, for a complex litigation it's like that going up to the Supreme Court. Going up to SCOTUS. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty quick, relatively. Especially when like, when the average federal case, federal trial litigation from start to finish is like two to three years. To then make it up two, two rounds of review, pretty good. The majority opinion deferred to science. And in, in fairness, the EPA did as well. Both the majority opinion and the EPA accepted quote, the existence of a causal connection between man-made greenhouse gas emissions and global warming, which true fact, that's a thing. <laughs> that's a thing. There is a causal connection. But unlike the EPA, the court concluded that the language of the Clean Air Act was expensive enough to admit new entities like greenhouse gases into the definition of air pollution and said like, hey, you, EPA, you got to regulate this. I would just want to call out, this is not on point with the discussion, but this is a 5-4 decision with Kennedy as the mm-hmm. swing vote. And like, can you imagine the Supreme Court today not just saying that the EPA can regulate greenhouse gases, but has to regulate greenhouse gases? I don't know. This sounds like a major question to me. Brett Kavanaugh, <laughs> who replaced Kennedy, absolutely would go along with that. Yes, I should clarify. It wasn't, it wasn't directly that the court said... They must regulate, but basically said that the the EPA's determination was ridiculous. Like it was 
are the standard is arbitrary and capricious. And like it was saying that like greenhouse gases aren't an air pollutant is like obviously stupid. If your determination rests on that, then your opinion is bullshit. That was essentially the thrust of the opinion. The dissent, which I must talk about just to hate on it, was a classic Tony Scalia joint. He did the classic dumb guy lawyer move, which is he turned to the dictionary. Okay, wait, is that a dumb guy lawyer move or is that just a lawyer move? No, it's because a dumb guy lawyer move. Lawyers are... It's, if, you are, if you are resorting to the dictionary and you aren't a patent lawyer trying to do claim construction, you're a fucking moron. I say that unequivocally. Okay, but having to discover multiplication does not mean that. <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm saying I'm saying without question, if you're turning to the dictionary and you're in a as a lawyer and you're in a lawyer making an argument, or especially a judge, and you're not a patent lawyer doing claim construction or a judge handling patent claim construction, you're a fucking moron. It's a meme at this point. Oh, yeah. The dictionary defines you know whatever as an extremely hacky joke and meme at this point. Yes. So the dictionary has a definition of the word pollutant yeah really at bottom his argument was like carbon dioxide is natural how could it be a pollutant and you're like dude polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are natural doesn't mean they can't be pollutants exactly everything if you if you squint everything is natural and like once you make that exception it's it becomes big enough to swallow the rule it takes zero effort to understand that that argument that Scalia makes is contrary to science, contrary to logic. I mean, to me, it feels like a fundamentally, I don't even want to say scientific question because it's simpler than that, but it's a question that you cannot answer by going to the dictionary, right? There's a reason why there's the famous phrase, it's the dose that makes the poison. And then ozone, we would like to have more of it in certain parts of the atmosphere and less of it in other parts of the atmosphere. It's not very complicated, but it certainly is complicated enough that you can't just use the first definition in the dictionary. Exactly. It's complicated enough that you can't just multiply things together. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you want to hear a good joke? Nobody speak, nobody get choked. Speaking of the EPA, we've talked about courts. We'll move on to agencies. The EPA is a great example of an agency that uses science as part of its decision-making process. You guys have interacted with or like at least know of multiple federal agencies or state agencies that touch on science. I mean, it's not just the EPA as much as I'm like. There are multiple federal agencies that deal with science, right? NOAA, NASA, EPA, DOE, a ton. A lot of the military does as well. There's a, a lot of science that happens in government, which is probably good. And those agencies are hiring tons of scientists and using their expertise when making rules and doing the job of agencies to regulate, make rules. But as Mass versus EPA is a prime example of this, politics can corrupt the rulemaking process. The Republican EPA administrator didn't want to say that global warming mattered enough to do anything about it because that was a political conclusion. This ostensibly objective scientific determination 
can very easily get corrupted. Well, I think there's also the question of who gets put in charge of those agencies. Is it going to be someone with the relevant scientific expertise or is it going to be someone who has the correct political leanings? I think that there have been a bunch of instances where you'll have a federal agency that employs a ton of scientists and they are broadly speaking on the same page about what the science says with regards to the issues that they tackle as an agency. And then someone who just has no clue what they're talking about, like, I don't know, like Rudy Giuliani's doctor's nephew. (laughs) Or here's an example, Rick Perry as the secretary of energy. Yes, The question is, how can you integrate science into government without having the science be bogged down or derailed by the fact that our government is inherently political? Well, some of us would say that science is inherently political. Again, we will, in later episodes, we will explore some of the dumbest agency decision making regarding science. But Sandra hit the ultimate difficulty of science as it relates to agency lawmaking, is like, what do you do when science runs up against political considerations? And who should be in charge of those agencies and who should be in charge of making those decisions when the agency either primarily or a lot of the time is handling scientific issues? Moving on from agencies, the next one of the next big ways that science makes its way into law is through patents. The Constitution says that Congress has the power to, quote, promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, which is what created the modern American patent system, which is the world's biggest patent system. Non-controversial opinion is that like, there's a lot of bad patents out there. EFF does stupid patent of the month and TechDirt republishes it. So you should go look at, and they point out that like a lot of patents are just like, shouldn't have been granted either because they're not eligible subject matter. Like just somebody tried to patent something that isn't really an invention. It's obvious in light of what came before, et cetera, et cetera. There's all sorts of like dumbass patents out there. Like sometimes the, the patent office makes mistakes and like grants patents that shouldn't have been granted. Like that happens sometimes. But really, I think the bad patenting problem is like a unequal resource problem. For those unfamiliar with the patent process, like you as an inventor file an application and then there is an examiner at the patent office who is supposed to look at your application and look at prior art, which is a term of art for all of the stuff that came before in the field. And then look at what you've put in your application and say, is this an invention or not? But The unequal resource problem comes from the examiner is like somebody with a bachelor's degree in the field. The person who's evaluating the patent, right, is somebody who has a bachelor's, somebody who is not necessarily the most keyed into a lot of the ongoing R&D in whatever field that the patent's that is coming in is about. And one thing that it reminds me about is if you ever read Michael Lewis's The Big Short, there's a little bit there about how these government regulators are staffed by people who, for the most part, are not great at their jobs. They're not like terrible, but they're not the best because if they were the best, then they would get hired for way more money by the banks and the shadow banks that they're supposed to be regulating, right? And just the fact that as a regulator, you're in a government job where you're getting paid less puts essentially negative pressure on the quality of the people who work there. And it seems like there's kind of a similar dynamic playing out in patent grants and analysis. Yes, yeah, not, even, not even similar. It is the same dynamic. If you think about a drug company, on one hand, you have the examiner who has a bachelor's degree, maybe a master's degree in some sort of chemistry-related field. On the other side, you have 
a drug company, billions or trillions of dollars in revenue who can hire a big law firm with many lawyers, most of whom probably have PhDs in relevant fields. They can hire other experts on their side to help convince the single examiner, hey, this this application should be granted. You should give us a patent for this. This is an invention. That tug of war is one that to me, the examiner almost never wins because what's the examiner supposed to do? There's an infinite amount of resources on the other side of them. Like eventually you're going to convince the examiner like, oh yeah, this is an invention you should, and it should go on. I would think that there'd also be an issue of time as well. Like I have absolutely no idea what it's like to do that job, but I would imagine that you don't have a tremendous amount of time to kind of go back and forth with the company or whoever is applying for the patent. So they have potentially quite a lot of time in addition to just having so many people working for them and the resources, but they have plenty of time and they can choose like when they feel like it's ready. And then yeah. I'm guessing that you just have a pretty short window. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How many patents do you have to evaluate as a patent examiner? Over the course of a month or whatever. Yeah, I don't know the numbers offhand, but it's like a lot. I mean, there's a there are so many patent applications that come into the patent office, and like an examiner has to look at all of them. You get a limited amount of time, and not, not only that, the metrics by which they measure examiner performance incentivize you to just crank through applications as quickly as possible. And I, and I don't want to ascribe a bunch of malintent to the examiner. Like the examiner is being dealt a pretty awful hand too. Like they're being measured on volume when what they should be measured on is quality. What's an examiner to do? Like examiners want to do a good job, but like, again, they're being dealt an impossible hand. Right. It's a rigged game. But also it seems like if you were particularly good at like sort of understanding patents and how to structure this kind of like thing, then there's a lot more money to be made working on the patent application side than on the patent examiner side. So like at every level, it's rigged yeah. more for the patent application. And the justification for why the system is the way it is, is like, oh, well, if the patent was bad, like you can challenge it later in a lawsuit or you can challenge it at, you can challenge it before the PTO later. And I'm like, well, what the, f- like, what? No. Yeah, it's easy to file a lawsuit against a patent that's already been issued. Or better yet, have to defend yourself against a patent infringement suit on a patent that should have never been granted. I mean, like I do this all the time. <laughs> the bulk of my job is like defending against patent troll lawsuits. That's mm. like what I spend the bulk of my time on. And I basically the bulk of my arguments to judges all the time are like, this patent should have never been granted. This is so obviously invalid. It should have never been granted. You should just kick this out on like a preliminary basis. It's the one time that the resource problem flips the other way in that the person who is being fucked by the bad patent has the resources. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the examiner doesn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. The examiner is one person necessarily kind of working alone. Like, yes, there are supervisors, cameras, and they can get help. But like, that's not the same thing as like me and six of my colleagues and like the three experts we hired pointing out how like this patent was bullshit. Oliver, bring up the big short is a good thing. Because like, I think I can't remember who says it in the book, but somebody says like working for a financial regulator should be like the top job in the that's finance. Yeah. Like, it should be the most prestigious. It should be the most important. Everyone should want to do it. And yet somehow it's the bottom. And this is the same deal with, pa- with patent examiners. Like the most prestigious job in the patent world should be as a patent examiner but it's like at best it's a stepping stone to becoming a highly paid patent prosecutor for a big law firm well at best it's a stepping stone to becoming einstein (laughs) (laughs) true that would be that's the best case scenario it seems like an absurd system where the moment to just deal with a bad patent application would be earlier on for the examiner to deny it, but they just don't have the resources or the incentive to do it properly. So then it's like, okay, well, if this bad patent inconveniences some kind of entity with the resources, 
to fight it through the legal system, then that would be the only hope of actually dealing with it. And but that and that it's also there's a bunch of assumptions tied up in that, which is like that whoever is on the other end of this like bad patent lawsuit like has the money to defend it properly, and like. Mm-hmm. If you're a small company and you get a you get a cease and desist from a patent troll, a bunch of the time you're just going to roll over because like the the patent troll business model is basically to like send a scary letter, but like make your demand small enough that people just pay you to go away. Mm-hmm. The they're not asking for like millions of dollars, and they're asking for like for like a pretty relatively small licensing fee that like you can pay us and we'll license the patent to you and then we won't sue you. And they're very good at like trying to triangulate how much they can get with having the target of their C and D still want to pay them. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot about this a couple of years ago. I want to say one year or two years ago where people were talking about how instead of having a patent and licensing system, a thing that would work really well was like a prize system where you invent something very cool that everybody wants to use and instead of it being yours it's everybody's but you get some prize from the government for doing that which is a substantial amount of money just like upfront. there are alternatives to patents as a structure or as an incentive system yeah absolutely and what really sucks about patents is it necessarily only conceives of a commercial reward as the reward for an invention in the constitution it says like to promote the progress of science Congress shall have the power to secure for inventors the exclusive right to their discoveries. It doesn't conceive anything other commercial reward for your invention, which that should not be what inventions and science are about. And yet hemmed in by this like dumb limitation. It reminds me of how, I don't know if this was a year ago, like before the NFT crash, when there were... When when there were noticeably more people than there are now promoting NFTs and saying that NFTs were the future. And there was this issue where art would be scraped from repositories such as DeviantArt. And an artist might find out that someone had minted an NFT of their work and that this person would have done so without their permission, without paying them anything. And it was very funny to me to see on Twitter NFT fans saying to artists... You should just mint the NFT yourself and then no one can steal the art from you and mint an NFT without your permission. It was like, well, that's not how NFTs work. (laughs) Yeah. Like I would assume that you could just make multiple NFTs pointing to like duplicated JPEGs of an image from DeviantArt. Correct. Or even the same JPEG. Yeah. But I mean, also, aside from that, it's like, well, it's terrible for society. It, If you believe that art is a good thing to have around, it's really not good for society that people who create art are then in that position of having to pay money to try to gatekeep their work in a way where the gatekeeping should not have been necessary in the first place. I can't tell you how many times friends of mine would ask me about NFTs and I'm like, you should not invest in NFTs because every single one essentially is is copyright infringement. I don't think it is really a question that an NFT would be a derivative work of the underlying work that's being copied. And like, surprise, derivative works are protected by copyright. Like the the right to make derivative works is one of the rights you get when you cut co- when you get a copyright on a piece of art. And unless you got permission from the person that you're who made the original piece of art that you're turning into an NFT, like, sorry, that's copyright infringement. Dan here in post. I must modify my previous statement a little bit. I don't mean literally every single 
NFT is copyright infringement. What I'm really talking about are the NFT projects where the makers of the NFT have not gotten permission from the artist that they have taken the artwork from and slapped a fancy link onto. I mean, even just more broadly, as someone who understands nothing about these things, it seems terrible that you can come up with something. And if you don't jump through all the hoops to get a patent or make an NFT of it, if it's 2021 or whatever it is, that someone else can essentially do that with your work, right? So you have to engage in this like defensive action to prevent other people from claiming ownership of what you created. Even after you have a patent, right? Like there have been cases where like companies have gotten a lot of, that I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I have this memory of like multiple times a company being sort of surprisingly zealous in enforcing a patent or copyright against somebody who seems to be doing like really no harm. But the excuse that's always given is like, well, if they don't ex- enforce it here, then they're effectively giving up their copyright or they're giving up their, their patents or their intellectual property. And then somebody who wants to do harm can actually come and take it and use it. And like that just... <sighs> Yeah, as a system. uh. Another way to leverage science, broadly defined, to just create more roadblocks and inconveniences when there already were plenty of them. And it's, I guess it's, I guess these sorts of things are just so complicated that that also just makes it much more difficult for the public to understand or get up in arms or any of those sorts of things. with patents is like you get to get a patent on an invention but like what counts as an invention like what is eligible subject matter for a patent the line there is can get pretty fuzzy the two really big areas where this gets extremely fuzzy is with software and with genetics so there was a big case that you guys may not remember myriad genetics was a Supreme court case it was all about can you patent dna the Supreme court answer to that question was a mixed answer, which was that like DNA itself, like naturally occurring DNA, not patentable. Like all you did was make a discovery. You didn't make an invention. You just like found some DNA. But the Supreme Court said that complementary DNA is patentable. And you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what does that even mean? Well, complementary DNA is just DNA strands that have been strung together by people rather than naturally occurring strands of DNA. Supreme Court said, that's fine. For any of our listeners who don't have a background in biology, DNA is essentially a recipe for protein. It's a recipe for amino acids. Imagine that you have an alphabet that has only four letters in it. You have an alphabet that's four letters long, and you can, or four different letters that you can make three letter words with. Now, the lawyers in the audience may be having a tough time with this, but. <laughs> It's okay. We're not going to do any more numbers from here. The reason. 
reason why this matters, it's not, I partially brought this up so that Oliver could dunk on lawyers again. Thank you. But I also partially brought this up because it doesn't actually matter here. Because essentially there is a limited number of words that you can create because each word can only be three letters long and you only have four letters to choose from. However, what each of those words does is that it gets translated into something that's called an amino acid. And the important thing to understand here is that you can have multiple words that will look very similar to each other that will get translated into the very same amino acid. So you might have a string of DNA that produces a certain protein. Each protein is going to be made up of amino acids, and that might occur naturally. What you could do is you could edit the DNA so that it does the exact same thing, but you could change one of the letters in one of the fake little words to something that is not known from nature. What this means is that whoever has the resources to edit DNA in this way can claim a patent on a process that is already happening in nature. So even if a certain string of DNA is not known from nature, you can still use it to generate a sequence of amino acids that is known from nature. So one problem is that it's very, very difficult to figure out in the first place whether a certain sequence truly doesn't exist in nature or if there just wasn't any documentation of it, which certainly would be relevant for compounds that are found in nature in rare endangered species. And then you also have this issue of, I could teach an undergraduate pretty quickly (laughs) what the steps would be, at least what the steps would be for altering DNA to do the same thing as the DNA that we already know about, but the DNA would officially be different. You know how to really bum you out? You know what the tool is by which the courts find out whether no. or not don't somebody don't want to know. <laughs> the two tools by which the patent office and courts figure out whether in fact a man-made gene sequence exists in nature or not is this two totally busted processes we already talked about <sighs> the initial patent examiner has a limited amount of time and ability to search for pre-existing sequences. And then once the patent gets granted, it takes a lot of money and time and effort, and you have to convince a federal judge to let your opinion into the case. Oh, oh God, this is is painful to learn about. Patent cases got so out of hand in the 1980s that eventually Congress was like, we need to actually have a court that can handle appeals of these cases because they're extremely complex and difficult. And so there is actually a specialized appellate court that handles, it handles all patent appeals and like, I think it's like 80% of its docket is patent appeals. It's called the federal circuit. It's the appellate court that I show up in front of more than any other. You'll actually be pleased to know that kind of by accident, the current federal circuit judges, the bulk of them have science backgrounds. They have actually like master's degrees and more in scientific fields like Judge Newman, who is in the news for being the oldest federal judge and refusing to step (laughs) down, has a PhD in chemistry. Like Judge Moore, the chief judge, has like a master's degree in electrical engineering, I think. I can't remember what it is, but she has a master's degree. And like most of the judges on the court have like at least a bachelor's degree in a science field. And a bunch of them have more advanced degrees. Now, as you can see by the fact that I had no idea about bachelor's like, like having a bachelor's degree in a science field only goes as far as it goes. Like I have a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and like all the stuff that Sandra said about genes 
learning it for the first time. Maybe cut that. <laughs> maybe cut that part specifically. But it's an educational. It's podcast. an educational podcast, and I'm learning stuff too. I mean, again, like I'm supposed to. Be, I'm, I'm a science idiot, and so I'm learning stuff. Having a bachelor's degree in science field goes as far as it goes. And like, even if you have a PhD, like picking on Judge Newman because I can. She's the only one I can think of that has a PhD. Like she has a PhD in chemistry, but like, does that qualify her to know stuff about physics, about software? Or about like anything other than the specific thing that her PhD was in? No. If the PhD was in physics, then yes. Yes, but it's not. (laughs) Yes, but it's not. It's in chemistry. If only she got a PhD in economics, then she would truly be qualified. (laughs) Oh, God. We will do a law and economics episode, too, and I will get extremely mad. But that's for later. The federal circuit got created because patent appeals kept getting out of super out of control. And also like the different circuit courts were disagreeing with each other on like patent issues. And because the shit is so complex, enough people complained about it that Congress was like, you're right. We should make this such that there's one court that reviews all this. I mean, it is. Okay. If we imagine an alternate universe where there is no nerd court and it's just the regular judges who never learned division because their hour and 15 minutes of multiplication in law school was just like so much for them that they were like, I can't anymore. It is good that we have nerd court, right? I imagine compared to, I guess, the most realistic alternative, which is not having nerd court. But just thinking about how you show up to some random party or an art gallery or whatever, you say you're a scientist and people start asking you the most random shit that has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. And you're like, no, I'm sorry. Like, when you get a graduate education, it's hyper, hyper, hyper specialized. And there have been a few times when I have been asked to review manuscripts that what I imagine would be the keywords for those manuscripts are keywords that could lead you to my Google Scholar page. But I just have absolutely no clue. And I have to say, I'm not qualified to review this manuscript because I, I think about those five keywords in a very, very different way from the way that the authors of this manuscript use these keywords. And then to think about, yeah, someone with a PhD, even if it's in physics, but especially if it's not, someone with a PhD in chemistry making decisions about computers. Now I guess I'm appreciating how much worse it could all be. can always be worse, but also we can always muddle through it getting worse. Yes. Well, by which I mean society can muddle through it getting worse. We the individuals may or may not. Yeah. It's very bleak sometimes when I think about it. But I mean, I think the thing that gets me really frustrated about the way that science gets talked about in law is like science can be a tool for a lot of things. And the process by which we do scientific analysis, the what like the entire scientific inquiry, I'm going to sound like a resistance lib a little bit here for a minute. So just indulge me. But like in its best and highest form, science can be a truth finding endeavor. And it can be the system by which we make incredible discoveries that provide huge benefit to the world. And so many times when the science touches the law, it's being perverted from that potentially like highest and best use of science. Finding new ways to fuck people out of damages for the harm caused by drugs. It's finding its way into agencies who claim that there's nothing we can do to fight climate change back in 2003 when that was sort of the peak time that we should have been doing anything. It finds its way into patents that allow people to do rent-seeking behavior on bullshit inventions that should have never been issued. And most frustratingly, it gets bandied about in legislatures. I'm going to spend the least time about talking about the legislature because it's very hard for me to talk about it without getting extremely mad about very dumb legislators 
fucking up science in huge and obvious and bad faith ways. And we will eventually distill our rants on the subject down enough to make a listenable episode. But the story of science and the law is often one of science bending to the law when in reality the law should be bending to the science. I think this is the ultimate folly of the original legal realists is that they tried to treat law like a science when it necessarily cannot be. At its core, law is a way by which we regulate and modulate human interaction. There is no way that that can be a science because human interaction can't be distilled to a set of principles. Yet so many times the science, which has a measure of objectivity, is bending to law which can never have objectivity. And for that, we are all poorer for it. God, it really bums me out sometimes. <laughs> really, just like, yeah. really bums me out, man. I mean, it makes sense. But like, it's, I mean, you have these two institutions who are purpose built for such, not just like totally different goals, but totally different methods, right? Like I said earlier, in law, your goal primarily is to win, whereas science is. It's contentious and like there's definitely like I want to a lot of I want to win mindset in it. But ultimately, the way that science works is by building consensus on various subjects, not by one person dominating according to whatever sort of laid out rules or whatever like the, the ultimate arbiter says, but by either by convincing skeptics or being adopted by the people who are coming up enough that the skeptics eventually are no longer considered a serious part of the field. And just like the timescales that science and law operate on as well are totally different. I mean, the sense of finality as well, right? Science is supposed to be a process through which we generate probabilistic statements that we are constantly improving upon because of new evidence and maybe also new ideas. Whereas with the law, I mean, I don't fucking know, but I imagine, right, that a lot of the time a judge is basically a judge basically has to say yes or no, right? Certainly, if there's a trial, you know, in the rare cases where there actually is a trial when someone has been accused of a crime, <laughs> sure, you know, if someone is found guilty, then people have to decide on a sentence, whether it's a judge or a jury. But first, you have to decide: is this person guilty or not guilty? And in science, there certainly is a place for that kind of thinking, in the sense that. There are certain ideas that just very clearly are useless and should be discarded. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying that straightforwardly rather than using measured language for the sake of using measured language. But overall, a lot of what science does is just increasing the precision of a certain estimate over time, right? So our mean estimate for a certain thing, whether it's the age of the earth or whatever, our mean estimate is this. And then the actual mean estimate might shift over time or we might be able to reduce the uncertainty surrounding it. And it's just a very fundamentally different process from is this patent okay or not? <laughs> Should this person lose their patent in a court case or not? And there are certain matters in society that really do require some kind of final decision, some kind of concrete decision. And science in many cases avoids that. And a lot of the time we have very good reason. We don't have all of the information that we would like to have. But at the same time, there are many, many instances in our society where you need to make a decision. And the people with the backbone to actually make a decision are not going to be the scientists. They're going to be the lawyers. 
I would say the one the one thing that sort of feels like the contrary point, right, is there are things where like science is fairly settled. It doesn't really want to move back on climate change or the theory of evolution. Much as some members of the political class may want, there's no use debating creationism or the idea that global warming is not real. That's not a probabilistic statement in the sense that there's some probability on it not being true anymore. But of course, those are the types of questions where the law comes in is like, actually, you can't be using this science to make decisions because I don't like what that implies for the decisions you'd have to make. It's very frustrating. Yeah, There's a long list of irreducible conflicts between how science is done and how the law is done. Now, that's not to say that they can't coexist. But to get them to coexist, you have to know about these conflicts and you have to care about them. And right now, nobody gives a shit. Well, we do. We do. We're the only ones. It's the three of us. We are all that there is standing between humanity and oblivion. Listener, you can also give a shit. Just don't tell us about it. Once again, I am saying, do not contact me. That's it. That's the ending of our <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man.